The scripture today is from 1 Kings 17, 1 through 3, and then 18, verses 20 through 26, and 36 through 39. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. So Ahab said to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am, a, am, le am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, and put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Thank you, Holly, for reading, and Jenna as well. <clears throat> as Ryan had mentioned, this is our first week without Darren, so we're maybe halfway through and we haven't stumbled too badly. Thank you. But we are praying for their spiritual time and physical time together that they might just grow as a couple and be refreshed in the Lord in these eight weeks that they have. <clears throat> Excuse me, I should have run water here too. But we want to be growing in faith as a congregation while they're away. So that's our prayer request that uh, we might be faithful and grow as their way. Now you'll be seeing, next week you'll be seeing Darren on the screen. He uh, recorded a message. After that though, the elders and Brian, who was an elder, has a graduated elder, will be joining us too. 
and we'll be preaching, so we trust you'll keep us in mind and uh, that uh, God will bless our congregation through that. <clears throat> now, as you know, Darren, we talked about, has uh, led the first two services of this, this uh, meeting the Lord on the mountain. But, you know, I kind of thought to myself, what, why so, what's so significant about mountains? Well, <clears throat> I think there might be at least two reasons why mountains are significant in the Bible. One is they are big. They're massive. You know, you look up to the mountains. They just kind of draw your attention. Uh, and in Psalm, I think it's Psalm 65. Yeah, 65 says, God formed the mountains. You don't really just, I don't very often think about creation of big stuff like that. I think of creation of live things, but God created these massive structures. And as we look at them, we, we're kind of in awe of these massive structures, how tall they are. And I think it's kind of a picture of God's majesty and his power. And the second reason I think mountains are kind of important uh, is they're stable. You know, <clears throat> they stay there. Uh, I read up, and apparently erosion of most rugged mountains is, you know, we're talking about inches in 100 years. Uh, so they're going to stay there a long time. And how is that the picture of God? He's stable. He stays there a long time. He's not, he doesn't change. Um, but something else important, it says, God's eternal love for us. Listen to this in Isaiah 54. For the mountains may depart, the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. Think how long a mountain's been there? Well, they're still going to be there tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, but God's love for his children will last longer than the mountains. Isn't that a great thought. God's love for us will last longer than the most powerful, most stable structures we can think of. So, so far, Darren's covered two mountains, Mount uh, Sinai and Mount uh, Zion. <clears throat> and thanks for, Jenna read, us, read the scriptures and kind of reminded us what happened uh, on Mount Sinai, where they ultimately got the uh, Ten Commandments, and it starts with, you know, serving or Trusting God himself, worship God alone, no other gods but me. But <clears throat> what was the people's perspective? They were scared. They were terrified. They said, don't, don't have God talk to us. He's too awesome. He's too frightening. You talk to us, Moses. You talk to him, then you talk to us. They were physically afraid. I don't think that's a great spot to be, but there's something about the awe of God you see in that. And then in Zion, what a great... What a great story that was. What a great event that was. When the temple was dedicated, after Solomon prayed, it said, fire came down again. We saw fire on, on the mountain in um, Sinai. That's what scared the people. Well, fire comes down again. It consumes all the sacrifices, those thousands of bulls and innumerable other animals. They were consumed. The people go flat in their face on the pavement, nose to the floor in awe, and I think some physical fear. And they say, the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. There's something about meeting God that just puts us down and just in awe saying, God's love and God's power is awesome. Well, lest we miss it, one of the songs we had today talked about, Lord of hosts, you're with us, with us in the fire. I think that's thinking primarily when we're in the fire, but 
we can realize that God acts often in fire as well. He certainly did in Sinai. He certainly did in Zion. And we're going to see he does, does in Mount Carmel or Mount Carmel for some of the other folks who might like that definition. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are with us. Oh God, you are awesome. We are so small and you are so big. Father, we pray that today we will increase our understanding and our feeling of awe for you. Lord, when we are in the fire, we know you're with us. And we, we know you come in fire. So Lord, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts will be pleasing to you, our rock, our mountain, and our Savior. Amen. <clears throat> well, we have a picture of Mount Carmel. Or Mar- I'm going to call it Carmel. If you're from California, it's, you might call it Carmel. But I'm going to call it Carmel. Um, we have a picture of our map. Here we go, the map. I can't hardly see it from there. But you'll see the kingdom of Israel is in blue. Kingdom of Judah is in orange. And up on the left side, just at the, mount, at the where it kind of kinks a little bit, and you can see Phoenicia north, Mount Carmel is that mountain range. It kind of comes down southwest, or south, southeast, I'm sorry. It goes about, from the very ocean itself, about 16 miles. There's, it's a range, more than a single mountain, of mountains. And it's a, it goes about 1,800 feet out of sea level. It's kind of, it's really grand for there because the water, the, uh, the winds come off the Mediterranean, they come up the mountain, and they get moisture. It's a very fertile place. Uh, oh, just for geography, those of you who like geography, that's about 100 miles north by northwest of Jerusalem. And for where, that was Mount Zion. And for Mount Sinai, it was way down the bottom. In fact, it's off the map. It's about 350 miles northwest of uh, Mount Sinai. Well, we heard about last week the temple's dedication and how what a wonderful experience is. We generated it again today. Well, the country was strong. Solomon had prayed that God would give him wisdom to rule the people, and God said, yes. In fact, I'll give you wealth as well. And we saw God come to his people in the temple, and they were worshiping him in awe and zeal. As I said, all the people, quote, with their faces to the ground on the pavement, worshiped and gave thanks to God and said, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. And politically, they were doing well. Solomon expanded the kingdom even further. I think we could say Israel reached its zenith under Solomon. Things were going well. But they didn't stay well. Within 100 years. If you go back 100 years, what happened 100 years ago here? Well, we had just before the Depression came, it was the Roaring Twenties. It's, you know, there's some people alive that remember the Twenties. <laughs> no, you're talking about 2020 vision. <laughs> no, okay, yeah. Um, but 100 years is not that terribly long ago. It's really a generation or two. Well, within 100 years, things had gone very south. The kingdom had been split. That's the first. Hence, we saw the picture of kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah. And in Israel, things were very ugly. The kings there realized that they were in competition with the Mount Zion and the temple. So what did they do? They put golden calves in a couple of key cities. They didn't have Levitical priests because they wouldn't come. So they said, we're going to forget all that business about having Levitical priests. We're just going to 
have a priest, whoever we want, and put him in position. They were competing with Zion and, and the Holy God there. So in addition with the, the uh, calves, they're right, right near Phoenicia, and the influence of the Baal worship, Asheroth worship, was very uh, present there. There had been some issues with the Baal worship even before the kingdom was divided. But in the north, the kingdom began to mirror the Phoenician gods. And it became an acute issue when Ahab, the king of Israel at the time, married the princess of Tyre, Phoenician, who was a, who was a Phoenician Baal Asheroth worshiper. We know her as Jezebel. And things went so bad that Jezebel, Jezebel began to not just persecute the Jehovah followers, she was executing them. Things were so bad that as they were putting up big structures, they were sacrificing children and putting them under the gates. From the time of 100 years before of a united kingdom worshiping in zeal, we see great apostasy. Official political power was against Jehovah God. The physical political power was for Baal and Asherah. That's how far things had slid. The government was promoting idolatry and eliminating, physically eliminating Jehovah worshipers. It's into this evil political, evil society that Elijah just walks in. Oh, we, we based on his hometown, he lived east of the Jordan River, about 25 miles east of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. And he appears and says this, a great line, as the Lord God lives before whom I stand. He uses that phrase several times in his life. And Elisha uses that phrase again. The Lord is, uh, the, the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. And he comes in and pronounces an impending drought to the king. I mean, I don't know how you get in royal court. He walked into the court, got presence before the king and says, there shall no, not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. That's audacious. There's no evidence that Ahab and Elijah ever met before. But he comes in and makes this pronouncement. Now, the, the name Elijah is a great name. It says, the Lord is my God. Now, almost all the references of the Lord is all capital letters. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That means Jehovah, Yahweh, is my God. So Yahweh is my God appears on Ahab's doorstep or in the palace and makes this pronouncement. But Elijah doesn't come on his own authority or his own. It's not his drought that he's announcing. He's, a, he's the bearer of Jehovah God's word. The word of him who Israel had nearly completely forsaken, had renounced, was politically against. Well, the word says next, God called him immediately to leave and hide from Ahab and King Jezebel. 
And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Depart from here and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, east of the Jordan. Again, 25, 30 miles away in a very small little brook to a very reasonably small river, the Jordan. So he goes off, making this pronouncement. And I'm thinking to myself, what is going on here? What was Ahab thinking? Why didn't Ahab just collar this guy and take him, put him in prison, or give him to Jezebel, execute the guy? It'd be an easy thing to do. But Ahab just seems kind of stunned. Did Ahab think this guy was just deranged? You know, he's just some sort of crackpot, let him go. Some of these times, people come in, maybe he's just, you know, he's loose uh, in the brain. But maybe he's just taken back by this outburst and said, my goodness, what's going on here? Or maybe, as Ahab, I think, was keen to do, well, I'm not sure what to do. I think I'll talk to my, my queen. She'll know what to do. And you know what she would have done if, if uh, Elijah had stayed. But in any case, God providentially spares Elijah from seizure, arrest, and probably execution. Well, Elijah obediently follows God's command to go to this obscure tributary of the Jordan. By the way, it's not too far from where he had, he'd been born, we think. <clears throat> and he stays there. In the story, as we've heard in, in, in Sunday school ourselves, he's fed by the ravens. What a beautiful story. The ravens come in the morning and the evening and give him food, and the water's in the brook. That works until the drought becomes severe and the brook dries up. And then God tells him, go north to Zarephath. Now, that's a strange place to send him. Here's the uh, prophet to Israel's been sent to Phoenicia, to a village in Phoenicia. So he goes up, obediently goes. Uh, And by the way, it says, go up to this village and dwell there. Now, somehow in my Sunday school classes, I never remember the word dwell there. He's supposed to dwell there, not just visit. So he comes up, and he's, the story, as you probably well know, he meets this poor, nearly starving Phoenician widow, and she has a son, and they were planning on having their last meal together before they were going to die of starvation. And Elijah boldly says, well, instead of you making this food for yourself, make me a cake. And she says yes. Uh, she talks about your God, and so she obeys. And as we know, the God miraculously provides that he says that the oil in your jar, which is the last drips, will never run out. The flour in your bin, which is the last half a cup, will never run out. And God provided for the widow and her son. And he provided for Elijah for the next two years. Elijah's not bored up there. The widow's son gets sick, dies. She blames Elijah. Elijah says, Let's go to God. He he prays that God would raise this young man, and God does. I believe that's the first miracle of a resurrection we've seen in the Bible. Elijah's doing well, but not so well in Israel. Things were going from bad to worse in those three years. The drought was so bad, we see just in the chapter before, the king and his, what we might call him his, Uh, chief of staff, they leave the capital and go two different directions trying to find some grass to feed the royal stable, the the horses. You have to realize most of the livestock by this time is probably dead. The king's got a few things, but he's he's run out of food for his animals as well. Upon his return, or Elijah's return to the area 
It's probably Jezreel, which is North of Samaria, kind of the summer home for the king. We find that <clears throat> he learns that Jezebel had killed probably hundreds of Jehovah worshipers. Anybody call themselves a prophet of Jehovah was being executed? And she, I think she's killing them, and, and all, in all likelihood, she's saying, the reason we're killing these people is because it's the Jehovah that sent this drought, that sent this famine. And if you follow Baal, my God, he's the God of storm, we'll have rain again. So I think in all likelihood, she's blaming Elijah and the Jehovah worshipers as she's killing them. And lastly, Elijah learned that he had been hunted royally by, the, by whatever organizations they have to hunt people. And they'd gone to different countries and sent ambassadors to nearby countries saying, if you see Elijah, you've got to tell us because we're going to get him. The king was out to get Elijah. Well, the funny thing is, here's Elijah trying to find the king. You would think after hearing this, Elijah would be a little bit nervous, scared, but he seems to be bold and brave. And so he finds Ahab, King Ahab. And this gets just to the first of the confrontations. We're going to have about three confrontations that Elijah has. Confrontation number one is a confrontation with the king. Upon seeing Elijah, Ahab says, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Ahab clearly was drinking Jezebel's water that, that Elijah was the cause of this problem. And he thought he got him now. Elijah counters, boldly counters the king's accusation and charges the king as the cause of the drought for he had abandoned the commandments of God, Jehovah God, and followed the Baal gods and encouraged the, the, uh, the country to do the same. Elijah certainly didn't offer any apologies for this drought, but he noted that God had warned the people, God had warned his people of the consequences of disobedience. You know, it's natural. I certainly do this. I think of Old Testament prophets as one who prophesy. And my first definition of prophecy means talk about the future events, right? That's what a prophet does. Well, it's true. And Elijah was a prophet like that. He told about the, the, uh, the uh, drought that was coming. But Many, maybe most scholars conclude that the, the uh, predicting the future was not the primary purpose of a prophet. The primary purpose of Old Testament prophets was to talk to the people and tell them when they were going awry. Talk to the kings and tell them when they were doing wrong. Remind them of the Mosaic covenant. Elijah here tells Ahab, that the drought and troubles in Israel was because Ahab and his fathers had, quote, abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Well, I was trying, what was, it, what was this Mosaic covenant? If you go back to Deuteronomy 28, it starts as a wonderful chapter. It talks about all God's blessings of obedience in the first 17 verses. There'll be success in battles. There'll be safe childbirth of many children. There'll be economic abundance. There'll be political recognition in the world when the society, when God's people follow God's directions. But in the next 53 verses, God comes down with a hammer on what happens if God's people do not obey. 
they disobey, what disobedience looks like, the first and primary one is idolatry. He talks about in those verses that the people will have be confused, they'll be frustrated, they'll be defeated, they'll be enslaved, they'll be sick, they'll be infertile, they'll be dislocated, and they'll have economic disaster all around them. The message is very clear. Obey God and follow his commands, and he'll bless his people in many ways. Disobey and disaster will be forthcoming. Now, Moses is not saying that all personal problems that have difficulties and sufferings are from God as punishment. But I think he's saying to a society, he's saying in these verses that sin has consequences. It has consequences personally too. But sin has political consequences as well. He was warning the children of Israel that the nation of Israel that he was formed in the wilderness as they're going into the, the new land that you must follow God. A holy God, a just God, does not ignore sin. That's our first point this morning. God does not ignore sin. You know, it's true in the personal level. He doesn't ignore sin. But it's also true in the corporate, the kingdom level. And here in 1 Kings, I think we're seeing Elijah going to Ahab and telling him that because of the disobedience, because of his disobedience, because of his queen's disobedience, and because they're leading the people, they had led the people into disobedience, that they were suffering the consequences. In this case, the consequence was clear. It was a drought. Now that would take some boldness. That would take some boldness to tell the king that. But he was, Elijah wasn't done. Got Elijah Putnam here. What a, what a namesake you've got here. Uh, so Elijah then goes and says this. He confronts the king with greater boldness, courage, and faith. He says, Now therefore you send and gather all the people of Israel to me at Mount Carmel with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Now you wonder who's talking to whom? The prophets telling the king what to do. That's, I don't know how else you can say it. And to my great surprise, Ahab agrees. He submits to this. He doesn't say, all right, hey, I've heard enough from you, Elijah. Guards, pick him up. No, he just says, he doesn't say anything. He just submits. I think that's incredible, just incredible. Uh, George Rawlinson, which is a person I didn't really know, but he's a 19th century theologian, had this statement. There is no passage of Scripture which exhibits more forcibly the ascendancy that a prophet armed with God's spiritual powers could, if he were firm and brave, exercise even over the most powerful and most unscrupulous of monarchs. You know, we're seeing miracle upon miracle. This is a miracle that the king obeyed. Well, let's go back to this. Now this leads to the second confrontation. When he confronts the people. Ahab dutifully gathers the people together and all the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Now I'm thinking, what happened to the Asherah, prophets of Asherah? Well, we don't hear a word, another word about them. Uh, it's speculated that Jezebel, when she heard about this, that Ahab told her that Elijah's called him up. Can you send him out? She probably said, no. I don't think that was a good plan you had and I'm not going to follow. That'd be my guess what's happened there. But they don't show up. But what we do see is that there are 450 prophets of Baal, or priests, if you like, 
And the people of Israel gathered for a great event. I'm also surprised, but who did Elijah talk to on the mountain first? Did he talk to the king? No. Did he talk to the Baal priest? No. He talks to the people. Now, I kind of vision this as kind of like Perry Mason. He's the guy looking at, his, at, the, at the jurors at his final statement. He's looking at their eyes. He's looking at their eyes and seeing what's going on. And then he says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord, Jehovah, is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. The people, again, they don't say a word. I think all of a sudden, heads were down. They had been seeing him before. They don't look at him now. Like the kid who's got a cookie he wasn't supposed to have and his mother walks in. You don't look at her anymore. You look down. Or if you're a student, we all know that as students, when the professor's there or the teacher's there and he's looking for volunteers, don't have eye contact. I don't think there's any eye contact. They, just, they were just frozen in their position. They were stuck. They, know they, they knew that they had been trying to live in Jezebel's world. There was a lot of benefits for political correctness. And besides that, it kept you safe. But they were also uncomfortable and completely denying Jehovah, their heritage, their grandparents' God, maybe their parents' God. They were unsteady. They were limping, as the word Elijah uses. They couldn't reconcile the two belief systems. They couldn't reconcile the two practices. Elijah asked him, why are you walking so lamely, so unevenly? Being so unsteady in your opinions and practices, you don't know who to choose, Jehovah or, or Baal. Sometimes you serve one, sometimes you serve another. I think there are a few, there obviously were a few faithful Jehovah worshipers, but they were a dwindling crowd in Israel. And there were probably some sincere Baal worshipers among the Israelites in, in the northern kingdom. But but. Elijah is saying, the majority of you are trying to have it both ways. When, Elizabeth, when Jezebel's around, or the king's around, you're going to follow Baal. But otherwise, you want to follow Jehovah God. It's like Jesus himself saying in Matthew 6, about a first century God, idol, or God, and a 21st century God, the God of wealth and money. He said, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, he'll be devoted to the other one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You know, God does not call us to compromise. Never. He calls us to zealous obedience. In Revelation 3, we hear something like this again. Jesus says at the church at Laodicea, would that you were either cold or hot. Because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. You know, we're living in a world that's increasingly pagan. That increasingly calls upon us to support sinful lifestyles, to support lies. We need to decide for ourselves if the Lord is God. And follow him and him only if he is. No matter the price. Alexander Solzhenitsyn 
kind of a hero in my eyes, a famous Russian who survived the gulags, the prison camps in Siberia for decades, is known for this exhortation, live not by lies. Sounds simple. Live not by lies. I think it's another way to say what Elijah is saying. In this increasingly pagan society that we're living in, we can't have it both ways. We need to be honest with ourselves and with God. Solzhenitsyn went on to describe what he thought faithfulness might look like in this society. Well, he's passed away already. What the cost of being true to not to lie might look like. What, what it might cost to be absolutely honest to God. So a fairly long statement here. <clears throat> yes, at first it will not be fair. Someone will, someone will have to temporarily, temporarily lose his job. For the young who seek to live by the truth, this will first severely complicate life. For their tests and their quizzes are stuffed with lies. So choices will have to be made. And there is no loophole left for anyone who seeks to be honest. Not even for a day, not even in the safest technical occupations. Can he avoid even a single one of the listed choices? To be made in favor of either truth or lies. In favor of spiritual independence or spiritual servility. And as for him who lacks the courage to defend his own soul, even his own soul, let him not brag of his progressive views, boast of his status as an academician or a recognized artist or a distinguished citizen or general. Let him say to himself plainly, I'm cattle. I'm a coward. I seek only warmth and to eat my fill. The simple step of a courageous individual is not to take part in the lie. Like the people of Mont Carmel, we need to choose. We can't have it both ways. We need to be committed to the truth. The true truth, if you like. The gospel truth. The biblical truth. The one who is truth, Jesus. At whatever cost. May we place a stake in the ground and commit ourselves not to lie. Now the third confrontation, the one that most of us learned about in Sunday school, the confrontation with the priest of Baal. Now, I like to think this is kind of like a, uh, a sports commentator trying to analyze the game coming up. Here we have it. In the north, in Israel, north Israel, we've got 450 prophets of Baal. Oh, we got one prophet of God? It's clear that the Baal people have the the numbers on this one. We've got to give it to the bail, bail side on that one. Let's look at, uh, how about a home field advantage? Let's see. We're, oh, we're in. Came completely off. No wonder I'm not. Yeah. Couldn't hear myself. And on the home field advantage must go to the Baal people too because we're right close to Phoenicia. And Phoenicia is where the Baal worshippers, that's their headquarters. And besides, we've got Ahab and we've got Jezebel on our side and they are profound Baal worshippers. Well, that advantage goes to the Baal people too. Let's try, what, uh, what's, what's the phone? Oh, what, what are we doing here? We're trying to bring fire down. Uh, well, Baal, he's a god of storm and fire. It should, I've got to give some points here, but 
Jehovah God. You heard a story about Jehovah God bringing fire down on Mount Sinai and Zion? I think we'll call that too close to call in that, that, that area. Well, it might have been too close to call for analysts at the time, or maybe they'd be leaning toward Baal, but we know it was not too close to call. We've got a dead idol versus an alive, powerful Jehovah God. Back to the scripture in my story and the story of, in the Bible. Elijah starts by addressing the people, as we talked about. In his own words, he says, I, even I, only am left a prophet for the Lord, for Baal's prophets are 450 men. He's saying, I'm the only one exercising the office of the prophet in this land. Yes, there were lots before, but they're either killed, they've left the area, or they're hiding in caves, and no one's here but me talking about the power of God. He contrasts his solitary appearance on his side with the great gathering of the 450 priests who opposed him. And after hearing the proposed test, you know, the test was take two bulls, cut them up, put them on, the, on your altars, and see whose fire comes. If, if, if Baal has fire, we'll follow him. If God has fire, we'll follow him. The people thought it was, a, it was they say it, it was well spoken. Another translation says, I like it. That's a great idea. And so, We've got this, this little contest set up. Lost my page here. Uh, by addressing the people first and getting their assent to this plan, I think Elijah skillfully traps the Baal prophets. They can't really back out. Uh, it's tantamount to saying Baal is not real if you can't do, you know, a storm God should be able to make lightning come down, right? That makes good sense. And if Elijah's willing to try this, You've got to try it. So the Baal worshippers are kind of stuck. And so what do they do? They start dancing and they start, they start uh, doing ecstatic exercises. Surely they could get Baal to send us one small lightning strike. And as we know, it doesn't go well for them. All morning they're dancing and praying and calling out and screaming. And Elijah begins to mock a bit. And he says, well, maybe your God's out to lunch. Or maybe he's taking a trip. There's even some other maybes in there that are kind of uh, more graphic. But he said, maybe you need to call more. Well, they can't call much more, so they begin to cut themselves, thinking that somehow bloodletting is going to help. And they go for a few more hours. The afternoon session ends with this somber assessment. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. I almost feel sorry for them. The Baal prophets were completely unsuccessful. They must have been exhausted, depressed, embarrassed, and certainly bloodied. The simple reason? Baal's a lifeless stone. Then, as most of us remember, Elijah gets in the act as his, his side, in great contrast. First, he rebuilds what must have been a remnant of an altar that had been there before, an altar to Jehovah. He takes 12 stones, the 12 stones, Stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. The United Kingdom. He puts the altar together. He, gets, he cuts up the bowl and puts it on pieces on top. And then he digs a trench, a long trench around the area. Uh, scholars tell us that the altar area was about 1,200 square feet. Now, it's about the size of a small two-bedroom condo. Single house, a big, big spot, 30 by 40 just in, in dimensions. And then he puts 12 jars, big jars of water, sufficient to soak the altar and fill the long trench with water. 
And then the picture slide. Then he prays. Oh, Lord God of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are the God in Israel, and I'm your servant, and I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, oh Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, Jehovah God, are God, and you turn their hearts back. A powerful prayer to the God of their fathers and the God who called Abraham out of Ur, he would hear and he would act. Why? So Abraham, or that Elijah wouldn't be embarrassed or wouldn't be executed? No, not at all. He's asking God to act and demonstrate his power over nature and setting down fire, that he's the true God, not Baal. And I think more importantly, that the people would know that Jehovah is the true God who's calling his people back to himself. That you have turned their hearts back. Elijah saw this is an event that would change the hearts of the people. A one-minute prayer to Jehovah God to act after all the false prophets had in frenzied dances and bloodletting and called on Baal to act for many hours. A one-minute prayer to God compared to hours of petitioning Baal and probably compared to days and months of petitioning Baal for rain that happened before. And when Elijah finished his prayer, the fire came down from heaven. It consumed the burnt offerings, the wood, the stones, even the dust and the water. Like the lightning on Mount Sinai, the fire that came down on Mount Zion when the temple was dedicated, God acts and shows himself powerful and awesome. And the people on Mount Carmel, seeing this awesome, fearful display of God to what the people on Mount Zion did, they go flat on their faces when the glory... And this time they work, they proclaim, saying, The Lord, Jehovah, He is God. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. In front of the king, then, Elijah commands, and the people seize the 450 prophets of Baal. They take them down the mountain, execute them in the creek bed. And Elijah returns, comes up to the top of the mountain, and prays. The contest was over. God was triumphant. His people rejected Baal and the false prophets, and they recognized the lordship of Jehovah God. You know, just as, as in Moses' day, God triumphed over the Egyptian gods, God triumphed over the Phoenician gods today, on that day. And then upon Elijah's prayer, rains came back. This is a great story, a true story. A story of faith and courage. God who does miracles and defeats foes. But what about applications now? I'd suggest we three of them we can kind of take home. First, James, the half-brother of John, thought to be the half-brother of John, wrote the epistle in the New Testament, said Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, with passions like ours, with weaknesses like us. You know, I think the, the likelihood of us putting Elijah up on this high pillar, this high tower, he's somebody that we could never be like. He's somebody that we can't really emulate, that there's something special about Elijah that made this work. Well, I submit the specialness was the specialness of God. It wasn't Elijah at work. It was God at work. Now, 
I have to admit, I have a hard time thinking to myself kind of like Elijah. I, his faith seems far above anything I have. His courage seems far above anything I have. But James saying that Elijah is fundamentally not different than we are. And if I would go in the next chapter, which we don't have time to do, and or the interest this morning, we'll find that Elijah has lots of fear. He certainly feared Jezebel. Elijah is subject to depression and despair, much like we are. But Elijah was used by God to achieve a great victory. And I think God wants for us to have the faith and courage to believe that he can achieve victories through us. It may not be changing the world, the country, but it could be changing a family or a son or a daughter or a neighbor. God can achieve victories through us. In that respect, we're like Elijah. Second take home. It took less than 100 years to go from the heights of glory and worship on Mount Zion to the depths of despair and paganism, and apostasy in Israel. Should we be surprised that the United States, in the last 250 years, maybe in the last 50 years, Christian virtues have fallen so far and so fast? I don't think so. Yes, the pace of the fall in the United States is accelerating, but it was accelerating at high speed in Israel as well. But like in Israel, God is still on the throne. He is the Lord. Jehovah is the Lord. He is the eternal almighty God. He is the Lord of hosts. We started this morning. He's the God of power. He'll ultimately bring history to conclusion that and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I don't know if we're in the final, final, final end times or not, but regardless, God is calling his people to be faithful to him. Wait for him. Rely on his Holy Spirit to lead us. Now, what does that really look, look like? It's kind of hard to say, but I like this verses in Luke 12. Jesus says, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom the Lord will make ruler over his household to give him their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom the Lord, when he comes, He'll find so doing. Tricky words, maybe. I think faithful living starts by being faithful and consistently doing that for which we are clearly called to do. If you're married, you're called to love your spouse, to care for your spouse, both physically and spiritually. If you're a parent, you're called to provide for your kids, to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. These are fundamentals. I think of the Berzies. I don't know if I heard it or not. I did see them. They're here. It was their care for their desire to care for their kids that came to the elders and said, "You know, I would. I, we would like to start a kids club. We'll start it by ourselves. If we have to. We'll start it if it's just for our kids only. But we'd like to think the church could come together and bring young kids together. They might know Jesus. They might have friends that are godly. Oh my goodness, that is being faithful." I think that is being blessed. I think of several families in our church who've 
been open to foster care, been open to adoption, and bring kids in their lives and their families and change their families, the dynamics of the family, so they can serve God and they can serve these kids. Blessed are they and blessed are we in doing such things. And then we can expand the circle of our influence and, our, and those who we talk with, talking about those, our larger families, our, our church families, our coworkers, our neighbors. We can show them the love of Christ and we can direct them toward him. Yes, that includes our church ministries, our, our, our children's ministry, our VBS coming up, hospitality. Yes, even local missions and foreign missions. We've have, we thank God that Holly and Jen and the Putnams are going to places this summer to share the truth of the gospel. Blessed are they and blessed are we in so doing. God is looking for us to be faithful in the place he's placed us. Our third and last application. Life is full of choices. And the reality is the choices we make, if we decide to live by those choices, it's going to change our lives. We're going to reap the fruit of the choices we make for good or for evil. Like the people of Israel, we need to decide if the Lord be God or not. The question everyone has to settle for himself. The second's like it. Well, the hearer of the gospel, not just understand intellectually who Jesus is, and believe that he rose from the dead, sure he did, I believe that. But will that fact change his life? Will he believe that Jesus will forgive his sins, will forgive my sins? Will he save me from the evil of this world? Can I live and follow this God? That decision needs to be clear and absolute. There's no limping between two opinions. Limping between opinions is one of the curses of our times, maybe the curses of all times. The world is full of and fond of compromises. And that spirit finds its way into the church. But Jesus was clear on this point. You cannot serve God and wealth. One who loves God can't Love the evil of this world. And to the degree that the world is evil, he'll learn to hate this world. There is a price to follow Christ. Jesus said, whoever who does not bear his cross, his own cross, and come after me cannot be my disciple. The person who chooses to follow Christ cannot live by lies and compromises. Very sadly, we often find ourselves following idols. In 2005, a non-Christian, Ivy League-educated writer and professor, David Foster Wallace, gave a commencement address at Kenyon College. It's about 60 miles south of here. He noted, non-Christian noted this, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling rationale, reason for maybe choosing some sort of God is that pretty much... Anything else you, you worship will eat you alive, will consume you, your worth, your wealth, your energy, your time, all in vain, with no eternal reward, just sadness and loss. That observation is so remarkably insightful for a non-believer. But as Christ followers, we conclude that it's not any God. It's Jehovah God that gives us purpose and fills our longing for God. 
It fills our longing for life. The people on Mount Carmel learned that. All other worship is idol worship. Paul Engel, author of the book of the Seven Summits, we're kind of following, defines idol worship as, quote, the belief that something besides God can give us life and joy that only God can give. They references Paul. <clears throat> they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Keller writes that a counterfeit God is anything so central or essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living anymore. We talk that wealth can be such an idol. It's easy in our society to see wealth as a must-have, something upon which our value of life depends. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is greedy, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, flee from idolatry. Now, idolatry is also seen in must-have relationships. Oh, I could never be happy if I'm not married. Oh, I could never be happy if I didn't marry her. And it's also seen in needs for power and position and prestige. If I need the respect of my peers or superiors or my subordinates to have enough value to feel satisfied, I probably made those relationships an, an idol. If I need to get that job, that position, to have that authority, then I've made that an idol. Yet often we try to keep our idol and follow Christ too. But Elijah is saying to us today, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. Charles Studd, probably a person we most of you haven't heard of, a man in the late 1800s, he's a man that struggled with idols and trying to serve two masters. Charles Studd, in his college years, became a Christian as a result of D.L. Moody's preaching in England. During his college years, he also became well-known as a cricket star. He even represented England in international play. By the time he graduated in 1883, he was something of a celebrity, and he enjoyed the prestige and attention that it brought. But just one year later, his brother became very seriously ill. Charles was confronted by the question in his words, quote, what is all the fame and flattery worth when a man comes to face eternity? Charles Studd was facing his own mortality as he watched his brother struggle with his. Charles had to admit that since his conversion several years earlier, he'd moved into a, quote, unhappy, backslidden state. But as a result of this, he said, I know that cricket, quote, I know that cricket would not last. Honor would not last. Nothing in this world would last. But it was worthwhile living for the world to come. He chose to forego the idols of fame, prestige, and wealth to spread the gospel. He became one of what was known as the Cambridge Seven. Seven well-stationed, well-educated, wealthy men who gave their lives to serve in China under Hudson Taylor's China Inland Mission. He wrote what became a well-known poem, emphasizing the uncompromising walk with Jesus. I'd like to end with it this morning. Two little lies I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, 
bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice gently pleads for the better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life of few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, oh, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whatever the strife, blessing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn. And from a world, now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone bringing the passion on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life? Yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, "Twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I'm dying... How happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has burned out for thee. Let's pray. Father, we have only one life. We know that. And Father, we know that it's moving quickly and it will be passed. Father, help us to forego idols. Help us to be brave and courageous. We can't do it by ourselves. Father, may you stir in us and all for you and all for Jesus and all for the Spirit that is powerful, that changes our lives, changes our direction, that enables us to hear the temptations and forsake them. You, O oh Lord, are holy. You call us to be holy, Lord, but only in Jesus can we be holy. Take us and make us holy. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last.